Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Dirk Kingma. Dirk is a research scientist with OpenAI. Dirk, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. It's great to have you on the show. I am looking forward to learning a bit about your background and what you're working on. Why don't we start with the first of those and have you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in machine learning and AI research? Sure. So I started... I think my first research position when I was doing my master's degree, I emailed Jan Lekun out of the blue with a couple of research ideas. I had no clue where he was. He responded and, you know, like he was welcoming me into his lab for six months. So I looked up where he was. It turned out to be New York. So I was very happy with that, of course. And that was <laughs> like 2009. And was that for like a postdoc or, or not a postdoc, but like a research position or... Yeah, so I, I was very interested in AI. I did a master's program in Utrecht in the Netherlands. Okay. And a friend of mine was studying in Cornell, and he got me interested in a couple of topics. So I spent about a year, you know, reading about the various ideas in the field. And I quickly discovered, you know, that Jan Lecun had a lot of interesting research going on. So I applied for a position in his lab and was accepted happily. So this was, you know, about three years before you know, the deep learning revolution started. And I had a great time there. So that was, yeah, that was, you know, 2009. I published a paper with him. I decided to do a startup afterwards with a friend of mine in the Netherlands. We did that for a couple of years. And then I decided to go back to research. And I spent again about half a year in Jan Lecun's lab and applied for a PhD position with Max Welling. So he's a, a professor in who just started in Amsterdam and before he was a professor at Irvine. Okay. And my girlfriend at the time was still studying in the Netherlands. So I you know, prefer to have a position there. So I was very lucky to get a position with Max Welling in 2013. And I was his first PhD student there. So basically, when you start as a professor, you get like a free student as your first, you know, student. Okay. So I was this free student, and because of that, I was also lucky to not be bound to a particular research direction or topic. So I had, you know, relative freedom to pursue my interests from the start. So what I was interested in was combining probabilistic models with deep learning. Because mm-hmm. I thought this was a field that was sort of underappreciated, you know, the combination. And the first paper I published with Max Welling was on the variational autoencoder, which is a, a paper that sort of introduces a way to combine Bayesian inference in a natural way with deep learning. Mm-hmm. And this method allows you to train generative models in a principled way and a scalable way. So mm-hmm. it scales you know, to large data sets and to large models. So that's where the key advantages. Okay. Yeah. And we've talked about variational autoencoders on the podcast a few times, but I'm looking forward to digging into that topic with you. What else did you work on there? Right. So, you know, the variational autoencoder, that sparked a wave of 
various application papers and extensions also in our lab. So we worked on trying to get uncertainty estimation work well in deep learning models. So as you know, most deep learning models, all you do is basically learn a single value of, of the parameters that lead to you know, good predictions on your test set and your training set. Right. But it doesn't necessarily give you a good sort of estimate of how certain you should be about your predictions given your limited data. And the combination with variational inference a potential way to achieve that. So Deep Paper on Variational Auto Encoders introduced a trick called the reparameterization trick, which was also applicable to estimating a posterior distribution over the parameters, which is basically gives you a quantitative estimate of the uncertainty over your parameters given your training data. So we did some like a paper on that. And yeah, so that was one extension we did. And also, I, because of the variational autoencoder paper, there was a similar research direction within the lab of DeepMind that happened about at the same time. I happened you know, to publish my paper a bit earlier, but so they developed independently a very similar trick. And because of this coincidence, we started also collaborating on this topic. So I went to DeepMind in 2000. 14, and we collaborated there on applying this method to the problem of semi-supervised learning, which means that if you want to train a classifier from training data, but not all your training images are labeled, then you would want to make use of the unlabeled data to get better predictions than what you would get if you would you know, solely train on the labeled images, right? Okay. Yeah, so we basically proposed a method using the variational autoencoder. And the results that we, we got at the time were, were you know, state-of-the-art, but of course were, you know, quickly eclipsed by, you know, a wave of other papers. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's how, it, how it happens, right? Yes, that's how it happens. <laughs> but, I mean, the variational autoencoder, I've heard that come up in so many different contexts. It seems like... I mean, you mentioned that even in your prior lab, you know, the the initial paper was followed up by a bunch of applications, papers that you worked on, but a lot of folks have worked on papers using that, papers and methods, I should say. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, one of the first places I saw it was in the context of like generative models for text. Is that a popular, am I correct in that? Is that a popular place to use variational autoencoders? Or maybe it was... There was another one where someone took a, I think they took a bunch of like movie videos or movie clips or something like that and ran them through a variational autoencoder and tried to, you know, generate a movie clip, which was kind of interesting as well. Before we dive into variational autoencoders, we haven't gotten yet to to OpenAI, have we? Right. So in the end of or I think somewhere mid-2015, I was approached by Greg Ruckman, who was assembling sort of an initial team for OpenAI. And to me, it was very intriguing because, yeah, it matched very well with sort of my own philosophy Mm -hmm. that I think it's good to, you know, to publish and to, you know, to write open source code 
for your experiments, but also to, you know, put emphasis on, you know, maximizing the probability of a positive future with AI. Right. So, yeah, there is, of course, currently a lot of concentration of talent in the field mm-hmm. at a small number of places. And I thought it would be good to have more of, um, you know, to perhaps, you know, safeguard the, you know, the openness of the field and the collaboration. Right. So, yeah, there, there is, you know, because of you know, the inflow of talent into, you know, commercial labs, there is a risk that eventually, you know, a lot of these labs will uh, you close up mm-hmm. and that, you know, the benefits of the field might not be as evenly distributed as we would like. Mm-hmm. So that is one of the one of the goals of OpenAI, you know, to make sure that the benefits are distributed eventually in a fair way. Yeah. Also, it was, of course, located in California, which is, <laughs> <laughs> which is not, a, not a bad place to live. Not at all. Not at all. And you've been at OpenAI for how long? Since the start, basically. So the first few months, I was still working from Amsterdam. Okay. And then I moved here in 2016. Okay. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. Well, one of the things that I wanted to ask you, given that we're recording this the week before NIPS, and I am going to NIPS actually for the first time, is I'm assuming NIPS is like your home conference. So you've been there, you know, many times. I wanted to, you know, get a sense from you both, you know, if there's anything in particular you're looking forward to about, you know, this particular conference or you know, any tips on approaching NIPS as it's become, you know, quite a large conference? Yeah, so this has indeed become an enormous conference. As you probably know, the field is still more or less doubling every year. Mm-hmm. I think the the attendance of NIPS, you know, follows a similar trend. So, you know, personally, for me, it's also a big, you know, social event. Of course, it's probably, you know, the biggest conference in our field now. So, all your friends and old colleagues from all over the world, you know, assemble at a single place. Mm-hmm. And this is a great, you know, moment to discuss collaborations or to discuss the newest results, you know, to have a beer together, etc. Mm-hmm. In terms of preparation, I would recommend people to read just, you know, through the agenda and make sort of a list of you know, papers they think are most interesting mm-hmm. before they go to the conference. Because, you know, like whenever you're there, you're... You know, it is overwhelming. <laughs> so there, like you will have, you know, no time to, you know, to orient. Yeah, yeah. Even the agenda is overwhelming, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. There's a ton of stuff going on there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and of course, one, I think, interesting thing is that a lot of the work that you will see is already published at Archive, right? Right. So as soon as you see a paper, you know, you can actually already read it you know, long before the paper has been published on the NIPS website. And often, you know, follow-up work has already, you know, followed their archive. So so some papers are, are already outdated. You know, at the moment you see them at NIPS, which is a bit tragic. That's but funny. And you're publishing some work next week as well? That's right, yeah. So with two of my colleagues, we worked on, you know, publishing a set of new kernels to GPU kernels, which is a software for the GPU, which allow you to train and build models with block sparse layers. 
So block sparse GPU kernels. Maybe talk to me before we dig into the block sparse element of this. Tell me a little bit more about GPU kernels and where they fit in in the kind of the software stack. Like I think about CUDA, I think about, you know, at the lowest level, I think about, you know, frameworks like TensorFlow and things like that at a much higher level. Where do where do kernels fit in? Right. So okay, so GPU kernels are you can view them as sort of middleware. Okay. So they they are they are libraries that require you to, you know, program on a fairly low level. Mm-hmm. And they allow you to sort of maximize, you know, usage of, you know, GPUs, which are, of course, you know, it is hardware that runs very parallel. So it requires you know, specialized software to make full use of that. Basically, they are a set of middleware that is, you know, typically already implemented in your framework. Okay. And you basically call various functions that make use of, the, you know, of these kernels when you build your models. Right? Got so, it. So, for example, when, you know, when you implement a convolutional network in TensorFlow, then you typically use, you know, various uh, pre-built layers that themselves call, you know, GPU kernels to efficiently evaluate, you know, the forward pass and the backward pass and the gradient computation on the GPUs. Are you developing the kernels in CUDA or at a lower level than that? Right. So I did not develop the kernels myself. Okay. So this was all done by Scott Gray, who is a GPU kernel expert. Okay. Yeah. So he basically wrote all, all of the kernels. So like all the credits go to him. Right. I guess I, I, I was more asking like, or I guess I should have asked, does one develop kernels in CUDA or is this at an even lower level than something like a CUDA. I'm just trying to get a sense for where they fit in. So these kernels were developed both at the C level and at the assembly level. Okay, so so fairly low level. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you mentioned, brought up convolutional neural nets as an example. Can you give some examples of the types of kernels that you know a framework might implement? Is this like for things like tensor operations or are they at a higher level or lower level than that okay so your question is like how you can use these kernels in your models no so i guess i'm still talking about gpu kernels generally and you know what what operations they tend to represent in for example the case of a cnn in a framework that's you know you're it's calling down to a bunch of lower level kernels i'm just one looking for examples of what those kernels might be Right. So in a typical CNN, you know, you have a GPU kernel for, you know, the forward convolutional computation, right? So you have a convolutional layer in a convolutional network, which is basically a linear layer that applies like a convolution over the inputs. Mm -hmm. And the result is the output of the layer. So, so that's where you use, you know, GPU kernels. And then there are, for example, GPU kernels for element-wise operations. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And so the kernels that you are publishing are for block sparse operations. What are those? So block sparse operations. So what we release is it is a generalization of the usual matrix multiplication and convolutional kernels you typically use. Okay. So so typically 
what you have is when you use a convolutional layer in your model is a weight matrix or like a weight tensor, which is dense, meaning that all the entries in the weight in tensor or weight matrix like have a non-zero value. Right. The thing is that in, you know, as you increase the width of the network, the number of weights increases quadratically. By width, you mean the number of features? The number of features, right, right. So there is a quadratic relationship between the number of features and the number of weights. Mm -hmm. If you use a dense kernel, like a dense weight matrix, an obvious solution to this is to, instead of using a dense weight matrix, you use a weight matrix where not necessarily all blocks, you know, or all weights in the tensor have a non-zero value. So what the block sparse kernels allow you to do is to define which of, so you basically divide your weight matrix or your weight tensor into blocks Mm -hmm. of either eight by eight or 16 by 16 or 32 by 32. Mm -hmm. And then you can say beforehand for each block, whether that block has the value of zero for every entry in that block, Okay. Or actually has an actual, you know, learned, you know, weight value. Right. Yeah. So it's basically if the weight values are zero, which is equivalent to having a block that is, you know, all zero, then you don't, you know, have to compute, you know, that block because the output of the layer of the operation is not, not a function of that block. So you can, you know, skip that computation. And so you would use this in a scenario where... Or maybe I should just ask you to give us some examples. I'm imagining that, you know, what you're essentially saying by using a block sparse matrix is that you don't care about the relationship between some features and some layers. Is that the idea? It gives you more flexibility in choosing how your neurons are connected between layers. Mm -hmm. Basically, in all the existing architectures, given a particular layer all the input and output features are connected. Right. But this is not necessarily, you know, the optimal way to use your parameters, right? So given a particular budget of parameters, you might want to use, for example, a wider network, but where not all features are interconnected, but only like half of them are interconnected Mm -hmm. or, you know, 25% of them. Or you might want to say that, okay, I'm going to just use, you know, connect, you know, half of the neurons with each other, and I'm going to increase, you know, the depth by a factor two. So basically mm-hmm. by introducing sparsity, given a certain, you know, parameter budget, you can have either much wider or much deeper networks. So, so this is one, one particular application that we investigated, but there are, you know, much more applications possible that we haven't even touched upon. So there's a whole like a whole series of papers that are coming out now that show that after training a neural network, it is typically possible to remove, you know, 99% of the weights mm-hmm. without significantly affecting performance. Right. Which is, you know, it is a curious finding. Like, mm-hmm. it turns out that most of the weights are useless, mm-hmm. you know, for prediction. These kernels, they will allow you to actually make use of this redundancy so after training, you could potentially just you know, now move all the weights you know, that are useless, and suddenly you have a network that is much faster to evaluate. 
So it would give you a speed up and, you know, future work would also involve, you know, learning the connectivity, right? So this is something we have not done yet, but we hope that we or others will do in future work. It's basically a bit similar to the brain, you know, neurons should be connected, which, you know, should not be connected. So basically this is a form of learning the structure of the model, you know, beyond just the value of the weights, you also, you, you know, you would also learn where, you know, where you have weights. Right, right. And yeah, we also have some you know, preliminary work that we did with Christos Luizos, an intern that was here this summer. Okay. So right now you are saying before training, you're specifying like where the sparsity blocks are. Yeah. Is that correct? And then... Yeah. And and you're suggesting that there's, you know, work, you're hoping to see work where that's learned as part of the training process as opposed to being specified up front. Yeah. So this is something where we have some preliminary work, but I, I think this is a very exciting direction that we or others can pursue in, you know, future work. Yeah. How do you determine where the where the sparse blocks are currently or conversely where the connections are? Is it, you know, is it essentially another kind of hyperparameter or a meta hyperparameter or something that you are training and evaluating, you know, with regard to some optimization that you're trying to make or some, you know, or the performance of your, your network as a whole, or, is there, you know, some set of heuristics or intuition that tells you, you know, where you should have the connections? Right. So in choosing the sparsity pattern in our published work, we took inspiration from the field of uh, small world networks. Small world networks. What are those? <laughs> yeah. So small world networks, they are a type of graph, basically, that you find in various systems, including the brain. Okay. Okay, so you also find it in social networks, right? So you or any person on Earth is connected to any other person on Earth in a small number of steps. Right. Six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so this means that even though, you know, the number of connections you have and the number of connections that any person, you know, in the world has is relatively low. Mm-hmm you are still connected to any other person in a small number of steps. And you find the same property in the human brain at a functional level, at least. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the functional modules in the brain are often mostly locally connected, Mm -hmm. but there are some more or less random long-range connections. And due to these more or less, you know, long-range, long-term connections, you know, the whole brain is connected in a small number of steps. Mm-hmm. which means that information is spread throughout the brain relatively quickly, even though you have a huge number of neurons. Mm-hmm. So this is something we took inspiration from when choosing you know, the sparsity mask in our networks. There are very simple algorithms for generating graphs that have this property. So these are called small world graphs. They basically... They just, you know, require you to have a certain percentage of your connections to be random. And so this is indeed a hyperparameter, but we do have the guarantee that information mixes in a relatively small number of steps. So even though you introduce sparsity in your network, so for example, we train, we have trained a big NSTM, 
that is you know 98% sparse, which means that you know 98% of the connections between timestamps are not there. Right. Right. So, so any neuron is only connected to about you know two percent of the neurons in the previous time step. Mm-hmm. So even though it's only you know it's only two percent in a small number of steps, every neuron is connected with every other neuron. Right. Which means that we basically do is we we introduce a number of internal steps in the network between external time steps that allow information to spread through the whole network before you process a new input. Can you say that last part again? Right. So because of the small world property, right, we basically only need to introduce a small number of intermediate steps between inputs to basically have a network that is you know, fully connected. So after receiving an input at a certain time step, you want the, you know, your brain, your brain to basically, you know, integrate that information across, you know, all neurons. And because of the small world property, you only need about, you know, five, you know, steps of the internal time steps in order to make sure that the information is spread through your, yeah, your whole network. The time steps are our property of LSTMs. Does this apply to other types of models as well, like CNNs? Yes, definitely. So we we applied the same technique, you know, to convolutional kernels. So in this case, you you know, we introduce sparsity in the feature dimensions mm-hmm. of convolutional kernels, and we also found there that it indeed helps you know to get better performance. So yeah, we have done a couple of experiments. So one is on so basically what we showed is that if you take an existing architecture with uh-huh. an existing convolutional kernel. Okay. So you take in the, like a ResNet mm-hmm. or, you know, the Pixel CNN and you replace the regular convolutional kernels with block sparse kernels and then you either widen or deepen the network, mm-hmm. you know, while keeping the number of parameters the same, you get better performance in many situations. What's the analog to introducing additional time steps in the LSTM and the convolutional network. Right. So in the convolutional network, you can, for example, in a ResNet, what worked well is that we, we simply doubled the, you know, the depth of the ResNet. So a ResNet you know, consists of a couple of stages. And between stages, you downsample. So in one experiment, we took a ResNet for you know, C410 and we... We doubled the depth of the network and we introduced 50% sparsity. Mm-hmm. So 50% of the weights are, are not there anymore, which means that uh, you know, the total number of parameters is approximately the same as, as before. Right. And because of the additional depth, you still have a good mixing of, of information. Mm-hmm. And so the rest of, so we kept the rest of the architecture the same. So, just, so the same learning rates, the same you know, the same hyperparameters, we kept, you know, everything fixed and we saw that it led to an improvement of the accuracy of the model. This small world model that's giving you, that's giving you an algorithm that you can apply to determine which 50% of the data you're basically getting rid of and which you're keeping? Or is it giving you a, you know, some kind of bound or guarantee that if you get rid of 
you know, X percent of information, you'll still have the number of, you know, a given degrees of connectivity or convergence or something. What exactly is that telling you? Right. So we're we're not actually getting rid of any data, right? Because the so so the state is still is still dense of the model. So all we're doing is introducing sparsity in the weights. So we're not we're not you know removing any any information from from the state. While you're not getting rid of data, strictly speaking, you're still kind of getting rid of data in motion in a sense. Like you're making it harder for the network to to learn or to get a piece of data in a given step, right? You mean that the number of weights per step is, is reduced by a factor two? So the number of parameters is reduced by a factor two? Right. I guess I guess what I mean is that, you know, ultimately when you do this, the network is still operating on less information than it had in a fully connected sense. Maybe before you do before you you know do things like add time steps and you know broaden uh broaden or deepen your network just if you were to have a fully connected network and then you you zero out some of the weights like the network is then is it fair to say that the network is operating on less less information than in the fully connected sense yeah so so it is important to note that this is something we do before training, right? So we actually train with the sparsity. Right. So yeah, so before you deepen or widen, you remove half weights, then indeed you do simply have half the capacity, you know, to store anything in your weights, obviously. Right, right. So it is it is important, I think, to to keep the number of you know parameters at least equal. It's just basically you are assigning your parameters in a different way to the model. Okay. So the model has still, in principle, the same capacity to store information. It's just that the the way it uses the parameters is a little bit different. Just to to summarize that you you are indeed reducing the model's capacity to store information when you remove half, let's say, of the weights, but you're compensating for that by either increasing your breadth or your depth. Yeah, that's what we are indeed doing. Okay, yeah. and then in you know, future work, I have you know believe that we can figure out how to you know learn the sparsity, mm-hmm. and you know actually you know during training be able to remove a large percentage of the weights, you know without getting worse performance. So that's the vision. How sensitive are so the, in the case where. I think with the LSTM, you said you got rid of 98% of the weights. I would imagine that which weights you get rid of is very important, or you know, conversely, which weights you keep are very important. But do you have some way of measuring the sensitivity of a given network's performance to which weights you remove? So we choose a particular sparsity you know, pattern before training. Right. And then we use either you know, a wider or a deeper network, right? Right. So then we train the weights. So the model has to sort of figure out like what meaning to assign, you know, to each neuron and to each weight, right? So we leave it up to the model to to use, you know, the given sparsity pattern. So what we found that worked well in case of LSTM is the so you know so-called Barabasi Albert graph. 
which is a type of small world network where you have a small number of neurons that are connected to a very large number of other neurons. Mm -hmm. And then you have like a long tail of neurons that are very sparsely connected. We found that this, you know, that this worked, you know, really well for text. So what we did in this case is that we increased, you know, the size of the state of the LSTM, right? So you have a much, you know, wider model. Okay. Which also gives you a longer memory of the past, right? Because you get, you know, to fit more information into the state of the LSTM than otherwise. And what we found is that if we trained a sentiment classifier based on that state. So we first train an LSTM completely unsupervised on text. Okay. And then we train a linear classifier on the state of the LSTM to predict the sentiment of reviews. And then, so what, what we found is that we get state-of-the-art results in predicting sentiment based on that model. So the previous state-of-the-art was published by Alec Redford, which is also co-author of this paper, okay. a couple of months ago. Okay. But now we found that if you train a much you know, wider network that is sparse, you get even better results. This basically you know, gave us state-of-the-art results on like five benchmarks of classifying sentiment in text. Right. And so this is an example of how you know, within the same parameter budget, reconfiguring the way you use that parameter budget can give you much better results. Exactly. Yeah. And is there any intuition as to where you're likely to see that effect or where you would likely want to apply block sparse kernels? Or is it something that, you know, will just have come out of experimentation? Yeah. So, you know, the space of possible architectures that you can train with these kernels is so huge that, <laughs> that you know, there's just no way that, you know, we can explore it all. So, yeah. Basically, what, what we aim, you know, with this release is to basically, you know, give it to the world and let everyone experiment with it because, you know, you know, we are way too small right. to, to explore this you know, full space. So, yeah, I, I have, you know, some limited intuition. Mm -hmm. And what is that? What's your intuition telling you that where might folks want to look first or where would you like to see folks looking to apply this? Right. So Scott is building in the capability now of actually having like a dynamic sparsity. So hopefully this will be finished before the release. We will hmm. see. Meaning that um, varies during training? Yes. So that you can actually learn the sparsity mask during training. Okay. And, and you could then potentially optimize it, you know, to get more performance. Right. right? So, we, right. for example, in us humans, it's, you know, we know that the way our own neurons are you know, connected is also learned and right. based on data. Right. Yeah. So it all. So this is this is a way of you know learning the architecture of your model. So personally, I I think this is this will be a very interesting area of research. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you know maybe I'm kind of beating a dead horse here, but it sounds like there's really two two things that could be accomplished here, and that, that they're kind of different. And I'm wondering if you know, there's some way that you think about these. One is, you know, given a parameter budget, you know, re-architecting your network using block sparsity to improve your results. But separate from that, there's this, you know, issue of this whole, you know, finding the right 2% of 
parameters that actually matter and then using block sparsity as a way to implement the network that you know just has what matters and presumably the result is that you are able to compute those you know much more quickly right am i thinking about that the right way and are those the you know do you think of those as the same problem or are they you know kind of you know two different problems you know that are enabled by this block sparse kernel approach i think you have it right yeah yeah so these are indeed two problems that you can you know now tackle and indeed yeah so either you know static sparsity which is what we have done in our experiments or dynamic sparsity which is sort of where you learn the sparsity pattern mm-hmm. yeah that is also an interesting application of this mm-hmm. and so it strikes me that a big part of the reason why you care about any of this at all is because of computational limitations. Is that the main idea? That's the main idea, but that's, that's I think, the main idea of the whole field of computer science, right? <laughs> Touche! <laughs> you know, that was a little bit of a segue into, in spite of the fact that, you know, we're getting around computational limitations here, you actually had access to some you know, pretty fancy hardware to kind of try this out on. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, A, kind of the specific problem that you, you know, the problems that you were looking at to kind of push the, you know, the the limit, and then, you know, how the experimental results you saw on the, you know, the hardware that you were using? Absolutely, absolutely. So one of the problems that we wanted to solve is to train a huge LSTM on a very large, a very large data set of texts, namely Amazon reviews. Okay. And we were so lucky to have access to an NVIDIA DGX1, which is hardware from NVIDIA that allowed us to train much larger models than we could have trained otherwise. So yeah, this, this was something that enabled us to basically get state-of-the-art performance on the Amazon Reviews dataset. And this was also instrumental to get the results I talked about on uh, classifying sentiment. What was it about the LSTM that made it huge? So the Amazon Reviews dataset is just a very large dataset of reviews on Amazon, obviously. Do you remember how many reviews how many reviews are in that dataset? I don't know out of like out of my head, but it's it's like a large portion of all of them. Uh-huh. And so basically the model that you could fit on this data is like an order of magnitude larger than anything we tried earlier. So you also need you know hardware to be able to fit such a model. And if you weren't using the DGX1, what would you have used otherwise? And how did the results that you saw compare? So if we wouldn't have a DGX1, then we would have had to use a cluster of GPUs. Okay. So recently it has become clear that for some problems it is possible to to train with very large mini batches or you know to spread out you training across a large you know cluster. But then you you will still get into problems of your number of parameters. So that is not ideal still. You typically you know, still need to you know, fit your parameters on a single GPU. So even if you can you know, split your mini-batch data across multiple machines, then you're you know, still bottlenecked by the memory of a single machine. Okay. 
And do you have a sense for at the end of the day, you know, well, how, how long did it take you to train your models? And like, how do you have a sense for how much faster it would, you know, it was relative to what you would have done otherwise? I think it's, it allowed us to train the model about twice as fast okay. as otherwise. So it still took, I believe, about, you know, two weeks okay. to train the model. Oh, wow. Wow. It sounds like a really interesting project with some potentially broad applications that, you know, I'll be keeping an eye out for. Clearly, you'll be publishing a paper around this. Are you also publishing code or is it more the, the research results that are the important takeaway for folks that want to build on it? Yeah, so it's the second. So we are actually publishing the code. Okay. So we are publishing the GPU kernels. I think this is by far the most interesting part of what we release because this actually allows practitioners and researchers to do you know completely new things very easily. So it's just basically a matter of importing the new library and you know replacing your existing convolutions or matrix multiplications with, you know, the block sparse ones and you're good to go. So yeah, it is actual software to use for others. Okay. Do you at this point have a place that you can point folks to, or do you know where folks will be able to find this work once it's published? You can find the work on openai.com. And if you go to the blog posts there, you will find a blog post on this topic and a link to the GitHub. Okay, fantastic. Great, great. Well, Dirk, I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Is there anything else that you'd like to leave the audience with? Yeah, I think we had a very interesting conversation. Thank you for inviting me to the show. And yeah, I encourage everyone you know, to keep sharing results, you know, to publishing source code of your experiments and keep an eye out on the research of OpenAI. So that's it. Great. All right, well, thanks. Thanks very much. Okay, it was my pleasure. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for your continued feedback and support. For more information on Dirk or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 80. To catch up on our OpenAI series, visit twimlai.com slash openai. Of course, you can send along your feedback or questions to me via Twitter to at Sam Charrington or at twimlai or leave a comment right on the show notes page. Thanks once again to NVIDIA for their support of this series. To learn more about NVIDIA and their presence at NIPS, remember to head on over to twimlai.com slash NVIDIA. And thank you once again for listening and catch you next time.